Welcome everyone to Bitcoin Optech newsletter number 277 recap on Twitter Spaces. Today we're going to be discussing malleability in ephemeral anchor spins, a field report from Wizard Sardine about Miniscript, testing Bitcoin Core 26.0 using a recently drafted testing guide, and more. I'm Mike Schmidt. I'm a contributor at Bitcoin Optech and executive director at Brink, funding Bitcoin open source developers. We have uh, merch is out this week and next, so I'll be joined by co-host Dave Harding for this week and next. Dave, do you want to introduce yourself and, and maybe plug the book? Otherwise, I'll have to plug it for you. <laughs> uh, I'm Dave Harding. I'm a co-author of the Optech newsletter and also co-author of the recently released uh, Mastering Bitcoin 3rd edition. Thanks for joining us this week, Dave. Greg? I'm Greg, or Instagibs. Uh, so I'm at Spiral now as a air quote Bitcoin wizard. I've done work with core lightning teams. I've done lightning development as well as Bitcoin core development. I'm focusing on mempool and relay policy currently. Antoine? Hey, I'm Antoine, co-founder of Wizard Sardine. Uh, we're, we're uh, let's say, security company on Bitcoin. We developed the wallet Liana, and I'm also contributing to other open source projects such as Bitcoin Core and, or in the past, Lightning. Max? Hi, yeah, I'm uh, Max. Uh, I'm pretty new to um, Bitcoin space, but um, for the last couple of years, I was working with Ellen Capital uh, on Lightning, uh, but looking to get more involved on Bitcoin. Excellent. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. We'll go through the newsletter sequentially here, starting with our first and only news item titled Eliminating Malleability from Ephemeral Anchor Spends. So Greg Sanders posted to the Delving Bitcoin Forum with a post titled Segwit Ephemeral Anchors. Greg, I think, at least in my mind, one way to progress on this and the way that I have it in my mind for this discussion and to get the audience up to speed would be maybe first recapping Ephemeral Anchor's proposal, and then second, what CleanStack is and how the lack of CleanStack and legacy script can cause malleability issues. And then lastly, the discussion around handling those malleability issues that can arise. Does that, do you think that makes yeah. sense? Yeah, we can do that. So yeah, I'll start off with a bit of history. So the term anchor was coined by someone in the Lightning space. Uh, so for every Lightning transaction you make, commitment transaction you uh, the, the new spec has what we call anchor outputs, which are outputs that are spent by a single party. They have to have a certain amount of Satoshis in them, otherwise they're considered dust. So 330 Satoshis. And then there's like time lock on it as well. So if no one spends it, then about 16 blocks later, anyone can grab it. So it's this idea that if you can't negotiate the fees, um, after the fact, when this, these transactions are broadcast, you need to do a child place for parent bump on them using these anchors. Um, so that's the idea of the anchor. Ephemeral anchors uh, basically are a way of dropping this, uh, simplifying how an anchor is built and how it's spent and minimizing the size of it. So an ephemeral anchor is in any valued output. So it can be zero, it could be 10, could be a Bitcoin, any value output that, uh, matches a certain script format. So the original proposal was a base just op true, the script, the script puppy being op true. And this would would mean that by relay policy only, you are required to spend it in the mempool. So in order for this transaction to get in the mempool, it has to also be spent. Um, and this can be used as a drop and replacement for these uh, other anchor systems, as well as it's just simpler and um, you could do things like uh, drop the base fee for a commitment transaction to zero. So you can remove this comp some complications in the lightning spec today and just make things a lot simpler. Um, so I got that far. Then I forgot what the next thing I was supposed to say was. Uh, the malleability. Uh, yeah, malleability. yeah it, right. the, the yeah. origins of the malleability with got regards it. to legacy script. Right. So I initially designed this using OpTrue because it's the smallest thing, right? It's a, a script. Basically, you have a script pub key of size one. And then when you're spending, you have an empty script sig because you don't need any kind of uh, legacy witness data. And it's a, also, it's not a SegWit output. So there's no what we call segregated witness data, SegWit, SegWit witness data. So it's uh, quite efficient to spend. 
The problem is with legacy script is that when Satoshi originally designed this, he kind of, uh, as far as we know, the Quinn script was kind of a late addition to the project when he was building it. And you had funny things like, um, if I do an op true, which then gets pushed to the stack, that if, if the program ends and that's considered true and then the program succeeds, but by consensus, you can also add something to the script sig. So adding non-segregated witness witness data, like I can put another op true there. So if I put another op, an op true in the script sig, it also succeeds. So now there's two things on the stack at the end, but the top thing is true, therefore it succeeds, right? And so there's a standardness kind of mempool policy that says if you're relaying a transaction in the mempool that the clean stack should apply, meaning there should, should only be one thing on the stack in the end and it should be truthy, should, should value to true. Um, but this is only a mempool policy thing because if consensus allowed, like for example, um, somebody pre-signed a transaction of some kind, um, they held it in their cold storage, a pre-signed transaction. And if we change it to where we require this clean stack principle by consensus, then suddenly we've confiscated their funds. So because the, the horses are out of the barn, we can't really, by consensus, um, make these things illegal. Uh, does that track? And so it, in the script sig, if something's in the script sig, it actually changes the transaction ID, which is the whole malleability. Original SegWit thing was saying, hey, let's make sure the script sig is empty so uh, people can't malleate, right? So you might ask, why is it a problem if your fee bumping transaction gets TXID malleated, right? Maybe that's, maybe that's fine. Uh, I thought this as well. It's a little weird to think about, but an example that came to me uh, by way of uh, Lisa Nigga, Nifty, Nifty, Nifty Nay, she said like, oh, it'd be great if we could use a lightning channel splice to child pays for parent a different channel's commitment transaction. So let's say you have like a, uh, a channel partner you really, you really trust and you have like legally binding contracts or whatever, you know, you just really trust. Maybe it's your LSP or something. And you have another channel with another counterparty that you want to go to chain with, but you don't have the funds sitting around and you take those to, to bump it. What if I could coordinate with my channel partner, my active channel partner to child pays for parent bump that? That sounds great, except what if I convince my party to do this and then a miner intentionally mines a TXID malleated version of our splicing transaction because our splice would have, you know, we, we would not include any script sig data for this anchor bump, which is, which is great, that works, but the miner could insert another op true, for example, or, or just malleate in some other way. So then when we're putting funds back in the smart contract, right, where a splice is basically taking funds in or out and then moving the rest back into the new funding output, this new funding output would now have a different reference point, a different TXID, it'd be a different TXID and output pair. And then suddenly all these transactions we'd pre-signed for unilateral closes are now invalid. So this is kind of like the fundamental oops here, right? As I realized, wait, this is really a problem if we want to use use ephemeral anchors in a composable way with without handing people foot guns, essentially. I'll pause here. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that makes sense. So just to recap, you yourself as the author of the ephemeral anchors proposal was aware of the malleability potential, but there didn't seem to be any concern about that because there weren't yeah. any use so cases if, for if, it. If, if you're using it with a basic wallet for bumps, then it means a miner could change the transaction ID of the bump, which is like, okay, so what, you know, funds aren't, it's not like they changed the, you know, they didn't steal any fees from you. They just confirm your transaction. That's great. That's what you wanted. But the problem is right. If you have pre-signed transactions based off of these new outputs, then suddenly the reference point is gone, right? Or it's malleated. So this is where, you know, I became kind of like unhappy with the proposal after that, where I was like, it's not really composable, right? So if you start thinking about, I want to compose from linkers with other protocols, suddenly it seems unsafe. So how do we make it composable or potentially opt-in composable? Right. So the other, once I thought about this, the, the natural thing to do is say, okay, how about let's take, let's say as an example, 
uh, version zero witness pay to witness script hash, right? Let's say we, we take pay to witness script hash of the script op true. So this is essentially the same thing, but wrapping it in the pay to witness script hash. But obviously, like this is uh, 30, 30, the script pub key is 33 bytes longer, virtual bytes. And then you also have to reveal the op tree on the other side. So it's another weight unit. That's pretty inefficient, right? And that seems n less attractive than other possibilities, uh, the, the original possibility, right? That, that's a pretty hard hit to take. Um, then, uh, you know, just before I, just for that post, I had realized that the real problem is I'd want a soft fork. You know, I, I want someone to like soft fork in ephemeral anchors. So you can't do script sig, a non-zero script sig, right? And then I realized, wait a second, they already did a soft fork. It's called BIP 141. Uh, BIP 141 defines uh, witness outputs, right? So you have a version number push, and then you have two to 40 byte push. So for example, taproot is defined as the version one followed by a push of 32 bytes exactly. The other version one output, so version one with a push of two or three or four or 40, so on and so forth, those are actually undefined. So those are valid to make and valid to spend, and they require no witness data. And that was kind of the aha moment. I thought, you know, the, the two byte push seems kind of useless for other reasons, right? Like you can't hide a key and you can't commit to a key there, it's too small, but you can use it to guarantee the scripts it doesn't change. So instead of op true being the friend anchor output, why don't we just do op true or op one, same thing, followed by a two byte push. So that's three virtual bytes longer, but then we get the, the, the soft work I actually wanted. And what, what is in those two bytes then? It's whatever we want to be. Uh, so I initially tried zero, zero, cause that seemed natural. And then that, then I realized after test started failing, that would be a hard fork because the last, if the last two byte, if the last thing pushed on the stack is zero ish, that means it's false, which means the program ends as a failure. So all the tests failed. So instead I made it FFFF or four Fs, but then, you know, it, it can be whatever it want, you want it to be really. Uh, AJ suggested the, the encoding, uh, let's see, uh, it's 4E73, which would, in batch 32, spell out fees, F-E-E-S. So I picked that because that seems like it has an address format since it's a SegWit output, a witness uh, witness program. And so I just decided to make it kind of like visually distinctive. It's very short, which makes it kind of obvious, but short and having fees on it's pretty, it stands out pretty much. Dave, I've been monopolizing the questions. Do you have uh, comments or, or clarifications or questions for Instagibs? I don't think I have any questions, but I had a, a few comments. Uh, so I think uh, some interesting things here is that the miner can still uh, mutate the spending transaction, even with the SegWit version, but they can't change the TXID, so it's still safe to use in those multi-party protocols. So uh, yes. it doesn't, so, yeah. So the, the attacker, so so to speak, attacker miner could stuff the witness themselves and change the witness transaction ID if they wanted to. But again, they just, that's not the, uh, that's not breaking the reference between transactions. So that's kind of like the protections we get in SegWit. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's, I think it's just a, it's a very nice, clever solution. And I think just as a general rule, uh, back to like Lisa's point, uh, I don't think this attack would ever happen because I don't think uh, a counterparty channel would ever accept a non-entirely witness transaction. Uh, right. So if you're so, going to do, if you're going to do splicing, they just yes. they just would say no. This is that's insane. Yeah. I would never do that because you could invalidate my pre-signed states. Uh, yes. So it's just, uh, it's just a really good solution here. Yeah, the splicing spec requires it, and it makes a lot of sense, right? You don't want to have some weird uh, exception. It's it's kind of weird to have exceptions to this rule for book gunning use cases. Now, do you think? I guess my my question here is: Do you think anybody will actually use the non-sequit vision now that you've got it down to such a small? additional size, you know, it's just three extra bytes uh, in the script pub key. Do you think anybody's gonna actually use the non-segwit vision or they're just gonna go safety all the time? Um, so my current thought is to expand the standardness as small as possible. So I'm thinking just doing the segwit version um, 
if somehow we had tons of up, uptake and we had a large user base that doesn't care about TXM malleability, we can reconsider it. But remember that if we if we expand, let's say we offer both at the same time, then if we discover something new, like, oh, we should have thought about this beforehand, we can't actually apply it to the, the next version. So I'm thinking start with the smallest version. Maybe we'll learn something, you know, make a mistake, learn something. And if that's the case, we can apply it to the next uh, expansion. I mean, you could also like, if there's ever, if it becomes really, becomes really popular, right? And we could always propose it as a minor software, right? Like OpTrue is a very narrow thing, right? And by definition, I'm pretty sure it can't be theft. So, you know, some very far flung future software, we could just throw that in there and say, hey, this is really popular. We'd like to save three bytes, you know, per package, we can do that. But that's also like something we'd have to discuss because it's actually, if we're doing a software to improve this, to save bytes, we might want to talk about doing something like SigHash group because it's essentially uh, a version of that, a non-consensus version of that. But that's like, that's like another discussion. I think that's, uh, that's maybe, I guess the other thing there is, um... I guess, thank goodness we have uh, Base32M because the original Base32, uh, we would have had to put size constraints on the witness script to prevent people from accidentally uh, paying the wrong address. So you're able to use this with a version one um, witness script because a witness program because we had Base32M. Otherwise, we would have had to do what we did for BIP143, which is yeah. constrain it to either 20 bytes or 30 bytes, or in this case, for Taproot, 33, 32 bytes. Yeah. The other note is we learned something when we did the original SegWit, right? We defined for version zero, we said only size 20 and 32 are good witness programs, which would have precluded us from using version zero with two, two, uh, two byte push. So we learned something and in Taproot, we only restricted the 32 size push, which is nice. So it was just kind of sitting there neatly waiting for us to use in another capacity. It was nice. Well, well sure, but I mean, just as a comment there, thank goodness we did restrict uh, version zero to 20 yeah. or 32 bytes, or we would have Two had wrongs the, make, uh, the yeah. base review. Yeah, yeah, so anyway. Two wrongs make uh, a right there, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'll hand it back to Mike. We talked about the motivation is, is this the idea of splicing and composability are that does the way that the modifications that you've made here that we're talking about, um, it helps with composability with regards to splicing, but I'm curious, does, does that also in your estimation um, solve composability for potentially other protocols that would be using ephemeral anchors? I mean, anything that wants to spend an ephemeral anchor, but also have a pre-signed transaction based off of it, which you might say that's kind of obscure, but uh, you'll, you'll be surprised what people end up doing or trying to do. So I think it's better to aim aim at safe, you know, at the cost of three virtual bytes and then reconsider later once the uh, field is more developed. What's a, an argument against ephemeral anchors in, in this incarnation? The, you mean uh, non-segment versus segment? Uh, yeah, or, or just assume one or the other or both. Like, what what is the argument for, for oh. not doing this? So if you have like a dumb wallet that doesn't do pre-signed transactions, yeah, if you do a wallet that doesn't have pre-signed transactions and you're properly tracking your UTXOs and like not counting on TXIDs being stable, then I think it's fine to use uh, non-segwit. But I say that with hesitancy, of course. You, you think it's okay until it's not, right? Uh, just, just as a comment there, I mean, like we're talking about three extra bytes, and this is for uh, CPFP. So if you're doing CPFP, you're already, in theory, wasting a huge ton of bytes on chain because you're creating a whole second transaction to three yeah. bump. So I, I just, for me, it doesn't seem like there's any real extra cost here from the three extra bytes. Yeah, I mean, the real comparison is if you look at the Bolt, Lightning Bolt spec, what the cost of creating these commitment transactions are with relation to these anchors. So I just did the calculations in the class night. And basically with ephemeral anchors, you're saving just bundles compared to that. So you're, you're comparing kind of the case where you're just doing CPFP and, and what we have today. And it's just a, it's low. 
it's back down to very near the cost of what transactions cost before they had anchors, which were also very insecure. So it's like a secure version of that at nearly the same cost. Thanks, Greg, for joining us. I think that was a great discussion. You're welcome to stay on and chat Miniscript and the testing guide for 26.0 if you want. Otherwise, you're free to drop. Thanks for having me. Next segment from the newsletter this week was a field report about Miniscript. So occasionally we have folks that are in industry doing great work utilizing Bitcoin open source projects for their projects or for their business. And in many cases, they're happy to share their lessons learned for the Optech audience. And this week is an example of that with respect to Miniscript. So not only is Wizard Sardine utilizing Miniscript for their business, but they also have a history of contributing to the effort around Miniscript. In our newsletter, we highlight we've been highlighting developments in Miniscript as well as adoption of clients and services using Miniscript in their project or services. Uh, but in this point, uh, in this post, Antoine, you give us sort of a high-level perspective and journey on Miniscript adoption starting as far back as 2020. Maybe talk a little bit about some of the challenges back then. Well, um... The challenge was around using Bitcoin Script for advanced uh, applications. So when, back when we were starting working on Revolt, um, making sure, and that's not an easy task, but making sure that the script we were using were safe and the semantic was the one we said, we said it was. And even more so, trying to generalize the script we came up for a fixed size with uh, with a fixed size set of participants, generalizing it to more participants and making sure that we are not going to to wreck the semantics of the script. And that's how we well we we had we'd had heard about Miniscript before, uh, so it was an interesting research project. Uh, but yeah, at this point we really. So uh, the practical idea of it. And so we started experimenting with Miniscripts and basically it enabled us to build Revolt and today to build Vienna. Maybe you can talk a little bit. I think we had you on a couple of weeks ago about not only, you know, we, we've, we've talked with businesses who are implementing certain technology at a wide scale, but with Brandon Black, for example, and, and Bitco actually contributing to the music to spec. And I think you personally, as well as Wizard Sardine, has been in, involved with trying to further Miniscript in different pieces of software and hardware devices. Maybe you can speak a little bit to your involvement on that side of things. Yeah. So in order to have a reasonable wallet, new wallet, new application, you probably want to convince more than your own implementation to, to make the switch to a new technology. And that was our case, for instance, for, for Revolt, where it was um, a Vault architecture, so supposed to increase the security of the funds, so necessarily it had to support connection with signing devices. However, signing of devices need to be able to reconstruct the script used by your wallet in order to make sure so that the inputs are coming from your wallets and that the change output is actually going back to your wallet so that you can perform the security checks on your device. It was not the case. Uh, so even though we had started integrating mini scripts in our software, you wouldn't be able to use it in, in production. So there's that. And then there is also wider ecosystem adaption of descriptors in general as a way of backing up your scripts uh, in addition to your mnemonics in order to be able to recover from a backup without having uh, one specific software to be available. Just, yeah, it just helps. That's a standard. It's just more widely available. And so, yeah, we, we did that. We annoyed uh, signing devices manufacturer for a while. Uh, for three years, actually, until they finally, well, we broke the chicken and egg because the tiny devices manufacturer obviously have a large backlog of 
features actually requested by customers to implement for for the devices. And so your new technology that your software might be using in the future that may or may not bring customers to the same devices manufacturer is probably not a short-term priority for them. And so the, the cycle was broken by first Snap and Snigref from Spectre and then by Salvatore Ngada from Ledger and mainly by Salvatore because he already refactored the entire Bitcoin application on the Ledger device, which is not a small thing to do when you think about all the <laughs> the funds that it should that he would be securing at the at the moment. Um, in order to be uh, to make PSBTs, descriptors, and Miniscript first class citizens uh, and supported on the signing device. So armed with that, we were able to release the Liana uh, at the beginning of the year uh, to be used by anybody with actual Bitcoins, not only testnet coins. Sort of trying to get the hardware providers, the hardware signing device providers to adopt this is, is sort of like a little bit in, in the review mirror, but you note uh, towards the end of your write-up that the future is bright with most signing devices either having implemented or in the process of implementing Miniscript support. Um, in addition to some of those hardware signing device companies uh, implementing Miniscript and, and getting with it, what do you see beyond that? for Miniscript. Um, what else can we look forward to in the Miniscript ecosystem? I know we, we had you on talking about Minitapscript and, and some other things. Yeah. We want to get into to that and maybe even more. Yeah, yeah. for, for Minitapscript, so maybe the field report. Well, I've read the field report before the Minitapscript pull request was merged in Bitcoin Core. So there's that. We now have support for Miniscripts even for TypeScript, which is really good news for what we are doing uh, with Liana, because right now the entire script is going to end up on chain when you're using Liana. Soon it's not going to be the case anymore, which is going to make it using Liana more private. Well, it depends how you use it, obviously, but it removes one of the obvious uh, way of exposing your usage of the Liana wallet, and it's going to make it less costly as well. So... Yeah, it was one of the last big pieces that I was looking forward to for Miniscripts. In terms of descriptors, more generally, there has been a recent progress towards standardizing using PSBTs and descriptors with music, so for aggregating public keys. Uh, that's not something that we're using ourselves, but something that other people are going to use, so that's exciting as well. And also, we start seeing some more usage of, uh, of Miniscripts around. So, for instance, there was discussions on the Lightning specification repository about making part of the scripts Miniscript compatible, so that if the Miniscript compatibles are going to be Descriptor compatible and you'll be able to recover Descripts in any wallet that supports Descriptors. So, yeah, that's exciting. And it's, it's kind of the same discussions that we just had about wasting a couple more V-bytes just to, to make it extra safe. In this case, there is some optimizations that you can have by having, um, uh, how do you say it, bespoke scripts that would not be Miniscript compatible, but at the expense of a couple more witness units, not even VBytes because it's in the witness, you can make your scripts Miniscript compatible and make them compatible with all the software out there that supports Miniscript descriptors. And there is probably more to come, like all new software are probably going to to be supporting Miniscript descriptors. So probably a good idea to support them. A bit of a meta question here. You mentioned at the end of the write-up, quote, the funding of open source tools and frameworks lower the barrier to entry for innovative companies to compete and more generally projects to be implemented. Do you, do you want to talk a, a little bit about what you had in mind there yeah. and, and how you see it? Yeah, absolutely. Trend? So uh, basically... Revolt started with Kevin and I uh, developing a, a Python prototype of something, something that would eventually become Revolt that was broken at the time, but we fixed eventually. And the result of that was Revolt. Uh, then we looked into actually 
moving forward with Revolt with specifying the communication between the different uh, softwares that will take part in the Revolt architecture, say between the watchtowers, coordinating servers, different wallets, and into implementing all that. Would not be possible to implement all this without some funding because uh, at the time we were working, uh, both of us, on our companies and we well, needed money to leave and so we wouldn't be able to just spare one or two years implementing Revolt without funding. But in order to get funding, we need to give reasonable guarantees to to venture capitalists to, to give that we can get product to market. Of course, they are taking a risk, that's what venture capitalists, but we wouldn't be comfortable raising money without even being sure that our scripts are not completely broken. In, the, in this case, if it was not for Miniscript, we would ne- never been able to start Revolt and eventually to start working on Diana. And, and uh, I'm sure it's going to be the case for new companies as well. So it, it was, in this case, the development of the Miniscript framework as an open source project was really an enabler for a small company, a small two guys in the garage, as I said in the, in the in the article, uh, to, to be able to bring a product to market and compete with bigger companies, let's say. So, yeah, and, and it's, it's something that is supported by grants and uh, all the, this stuff as well, which, and we've seen a, a progress on the side. There is more and more donations going to developers and more and more people uh, building frameworks in the open. So, Miniscript was one such example, but for instance, we can think of toolkits uh, of SDKs that are being built, such as BDK, in, let's say in one year from now, two years from now, it's going to be m- way easier for a small company to bring a product to market uh, than it was, I don't know, in 2015 or 2017, because all the tooling is there in the open, ready to be used. So I think it's a good dynamic that was put in the last years. Dave or Greg, any comments or questions for Antoine? Uh, first, I just want to really, really thank Antoine for, you know, all the development you've done here. You've talked about, you know, you work on Revolt and Leanna, but you've also done an amazing job of upstreaming a lot of your work and contributing to the uh, to Bitcoin Core and to Miniscript itself. Um, you've, you know, you make an incredible number of contributions there that you didn't have to do. And a lot of a lot of companies. You know, they take open source software and they run with it and they never give back and they never give back substantially. You give back substantially. So I, I really want to just start by thanking you there. Um, I think Miniscript is really exciting. Um, I think if you look at Ethereum, uh, which is for me, it's often the poster child of how to do things wrong. They have for every time they somebody comes up with a different script to do something clever um, or they think it's clever. Um, they had to basically build a new application around, a new wallet around it. And I think when we look at Bitcoin, we don't want that. We want people to have a single signing device or a set of signing devices that they can use for everything. It's really clear what their security uh, setup is and how separate that is from these things they want to do. For example, you want to have a on-chain wallet. You want to have a lightning wallet. You want to have a cold wallet. You should be able to use you know, just plug-in components like hardware devices to do that. And Miniscript makes that possible. If we have a lot of devices uh, that all are Miniscript compatible, uh, they can just, they can work with Lightning. Not currently, the protocol currently doesn't use uh, Miniscript compatible scripts. Uh, But like you said, for a few extra witness bytes, we can make these things compatible. They can use Lightning. They can use Revolt. They can use, you know, Liana. They can use a whole bunch of other stuff that's using advanced scripts, that's using better security or alternative security. Um, And just use their, their common wallets, their, their favorite wallet interface to do that. So I think this is an amazing initiative. I'm really thankful to you and everybody who's working on this for really leveling up Bitcoin security in a way that I, I don't think we see altcoins doing. In altcoins, we just see people building uh, new wallets for every single thing. And each one of those wallets is just 
it's a desktop client or it's a mobile client. It doesn't really build the security into it. Um, so I just rambled for a bit. I did have a question. Um, I know, Antoine, you're also involved in some research in Covenants, uh, and it, it dovetails with some of the work that you're doing on Revolt and uh, Liana. Um, how do you see Covenant proposals, for example, CDV, OpCat, uh, Object Sigma Stack, um, are those, do you think those are going to be compatible with Miniscript, or do you think we're going to need a complete redesign of the language for handling that kind of stuff? Uh, I think that interesting covenants are more powerful than just, for instance, what CTV enables. You could you could integrate CTV into Miniscript. Jeremy did it back in the days. Uh, for more interesting stuff, you basically lose a lot of the interesting properties of Miniscripts. So I believe we should, well, we, I believe we would have to use a different type of framework in order to work with governance than Miniscripts. Yeah, so uh, I'll speak up a little bit too. Uh, I think, yeah, I say I, I, um, I concur with everything David said. One big point is like, what's the problem with having a wallet that doesn't interoperate, right? And the problem is that you don't have, you have those vendor lock-in, right? So if you install the latest smart contract wallet that has, you know, in Bitcoin, if you have like a three of five or a time lock or whatever, the problem is, right, as a user, you're locked into that ecosystem. That software developer is essentially almost a custodian of your coins in, in some ways, right? And I always thought for the longest time we were never going to get away from the single key setup because at least single key setup, people have their seed phrase, they can get their money back, they can switch harder wallets, software wallets, whatever, and get their money back. But I think Miniscript is really the key to unlocking more general non-vendor locked in wallets. And so that's what makes me excited. I think it's a practical thing that uh, people can opt into these better security models without being locked in to their vendor. So that's what excites me. Antoine, any final words before we wrap up the field report section? I think all was said. Thank you. So everyone go try Liana Wallet, right? Antoine, you're welcome to stay on to the rest of the newsletter. If you have things you got to do, we understand and you can drop. I'll stay. Thank you. Moving on to the releases and release candidates section this week, we have three. The first one is LND 0.17.1 beta. I think we talked about the release candidate for this beta last week. Um, and in addition to some bug fixes in this release, there are two items that I thought were interesting to, to maybe highlight for the audience. This release uses an updated BTC wallet dependency that improves the performance of mempool scanning, particularly when the mempool is large as it has been lately. And the second item I thought was interesting that is that this release for LND has a functional change to the way that LND handles local force closes. Previously, LND would force sweep when the CPFP requirement was met, whereas with this release, that's changed, and um, it, it's changed to attempt automatic CPFP only when there's a relevant HTLC to that node that is going to time out in the next 144 blocks. And part of that second change that I just mentioned um, is also involves um, anchor sweeping. And as part of the sweeping, quote, when supplying a wallet UTXO to a force sweeping, we'd always try the smallest UTXO first, which provides a chance to aggregate the small wallet UTXOs and keep the larger UTXOs available for other purposes. So as part of their sweeping now, there's a bit of consolidation of smaller UTXOs going on there as well now. Dave, did you have any commentary on the LND release? Ah, I had a couple of things. Uh, first of all, just a, a fun note. Uh, the thing you were just talking about, the uh, CPF logic, uh, in their release notes, they don't call that an enhancement, they call it an enchantment. I don't know if that's a typo or just an amusing play on words. The other thing is they, um, the mempool improvement uh, that you talked about. That actually comes back to the topic we discussed in Optic Newsletter number 274, the replacement cycling vulnerability. Uh, so one of LND's mitigations for that was that they began scanning the mempool for pre-images. Um, and 
they've actually had quite a few releases now where they've had to fine tune that. It actually was a you know a simple idea, but when they actually went to implement it, it took up a lot of CPU. They had a lot of problems, and they keep refining it as they find new edge cases. So it's just a a fun callback, or maybe not fun. The newsletter number two seventy four. Excellent. Thanks, Dave. Next release, candidate, Bitcoin Core 26.0 RC2. And we have on special guest Max Edwards, who, as part of the effort to get this release candidate tested, has created a testing guide, which is now available and we link to from the newsletter. Um, Max, maybe you could talk a little bit about the motivation for having a testing guide. What What is a, a outcome that the community would seek to see from having such a guide? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'd say it's to try and get as much scrutiny as possible on the new release candidate. Um, so one of the things that the guide does is it will um, it will list a lot of high-level items that have changed between the last version. So it will really guide someone when looking at the new release candidate um, where they should spend their time. Um, and it's also, I'd say, like a great place um, for someone looking to add value. Um, you know, they might not have a lot of experience um, working on Bitcoin Core. You know, I include myself in that group. Um, and so this guide will really help uh, take someone fr from the start and um, and show them where they can test. So as someone who's testing, um, I don't need to have any familiarity necessarily with the code base itself. Um, I can be testing either using the GUI or there's a lot of command line um, related tests that you sort of walk through in the guide. Is that is that sort of the experience level that that would be required as someone who can kind of fire up the command line and, and run some Bitcoin CLI commands? Yeah, it, it's exactly that. I, I think for this guide, it's um, it's pretty much all CLI. I'm trying to think if there's much you could do. There, there are probably some bits you could do with the GUI. Um, but no, it, it's, um, it, it has like a preparation section where it, it doesn't assume much knowledge. So um, it'll get you up and running, get you a CLI environment with... Um, uh, you know, with a data directory and, and the right values in your comp file, things like that, um, to, to guide you through and explain how to sort of clean and reset your environment in between each test. Um, I, I'd say if you have no Bitcoin experience whatsoever, maybe some of the things might be a bit abstract. Um, but uh, you definitely don't have to have any exposure to the code. Uh, you, you should be able to follow the guide um, and uh, get the outcomes, you know, test that it works for you. And what are some of those prerequisites for being able to run through the guide and you know maybe roughly go through what people could expect following the document? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, the prerequisites are essentially you need to have uh, Bitcoin downloaded. So you can either just grab uh, the release candidate binary um, or it links off to guides so that you can compile it yourself on your own machine. Um, and then the rest of it is just, uh, you know, like a, a shell environment where you um, set up a few commands and a few aliases. Um, so, yeah, having access to Bash or, or an equivalent shell, um, those two things are, are basically, I tried to keep the, the prerequisites as minimal as possible. So, for example, we're not, you don't even require to have JQ installed on your system. Um, I suppose another thing to note is whether you need to have like a synced mainnet node. Um, it's not essential, but it would be great if you did. Um, you know, some of the tests, if we can test them on, on mainnet, um, is always better than, than testing on signet. But I, I'm pretty sure for, for the vast majority of the document, um, there's, there's an option to do it on reg test or on, on signet. Um, so you can start without having to have a big hard disk or a, or a pruned node or, or, or something like that. So what sort of changes in this release are you in particularly focusing on with, in terms of testing the different topics or categories of, of things that people should be looking at that you guide them through? Sure, I can, I can go through what's in there and then I can also explain you know, how we came to that list. Um, so um, we're covering two new RPCs. One is uh, get prioritized transactions and another one is in, import mempool. Um, we've got a test around the V2 transport, which is something people are quite excited about. 
Um, we've got a test on Tap Miniscript, which it's fantastic that we've had uh, Antoine on this space because uh, he actually helped me uh, write that test. Um, we have Ancestor Aware funding, um, outbound connection management, and then something for Mac OS users. Uh, we have um, uh, a new zip package, so it'd be great if people could uh, download that zip and see if, uh, if the new way of packaging uh, Bitcoin works for them. Um, so how we came to this list, I mean, I mean, first of all, I had a look and I think there's over 600 merged PRs between version 25 and, and version 26. So it's immediately quite intimidating, especially if you haven't been following the de development uh, very closely. Like you, um, it's, it's uh, a bit intimidating to figure out what's worth testing. Um, but something to note is that when uh, a lot of the developers have something that they think is important for a user to know about or for a user to test, they will often add it into the release notes. So that was kind of the first port of call to try and figure out um, a set of candidates to go in this document. Um, then we had some chats on IRC um, in the main um, Bitcoin Dev IRC channel and uh, and some more topics were proposed, things that maybe hadn't gone into the uh, the release notes just yet and then from from that sort of bigger list it was whittled down to things that are um they're very useful for a user to test because it might be difficult um in code to come up with every possible scenario so if it's something that you know that involves user data or you know something with a mempool uh, like the mempool is never going to be it's always you know day to day it's always going to be a different shape isn't it so if it's something to do with the mempool that might be a great thing to test for example um, and things that were, were excluded were where it's basically it's very, very easy to verify uh, that something is working and, and there aren't many options. So uh, there was, for example, some uh, wallet UI changes where an option had been removed. We don't really need people testing that because it's pretty obvious for a few people running the software that that option is now no longer there in the UI. Um, so we don't, we don't waste people's time with that. What's the appropriate avenue for someone who's going through the testing guide? I guess there, there could be two scenarios and maybe one, they have trouble with the guide itself um, and, can't, and getting something work. And maybe a second category of thing is that maybe they perhaps come across something that isn't working appropriately and, they, and they'd like to surface that to somebody without necessarily posting to the Bitcoin dev mailing list something that may or may not actually be a bug? Like, where should the feedback go from people? Uh, I think I'll cover the second item first, because that's kind of like the, that's the reason for making the document. You know, if, if we can, if some uh, bug is found in one of these new features or these, these changes, um, then we need to know about it as soon as possible. Um, and then, you know, potentially a fix needs to go in before the release candidate goes out. Um, so I'd say it's all it's all the regular places. Um, creating an issue ticket on um, on the Bitcoin GitHub would be an obvious first place. If you wanted to discuss it, uh, jumping into IRC is probably a great place to, to bring it up, um, the main dev channel there. Um, as for feedback on the guide itself, um, at the top and bottom of the guide is a link to uh, a tracking issue for feedback on the document itself. Um, so that's uh, that's probably the place to put it now. Excellent. What is the timing like for somebody who's maybe thinking about, hey, this sounds like a fun project. I want to learn a little bit more about Bitcoin Core and, and potentially help out with some of this testing. Can can I do it next week? What like what's the um, sort of time frame or, or maybe incentivizing people to do it sooner than later based on uh, timelines? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say from now, you know, the, the document's up. Um, it's, uh, it's been through a few rounds of review. Uh, yesterday, uh, we went through it in the PR Review Club. Um, so I think it's, uh, it's ready for people to, to jump on. And in terms of um, how much time you'd have to commit to it, uh, I'd say if you were starting from complete fresh, uh, a couple of hours maybe, you know, I, I can probably run through it now myself in about 20 minutes, but that's that's because I've been through it and through it and through it so many times. But I think if you were uh, seeing these things for the first time and setting up your environment for the first time, um, yeah, if you had um, an evening or so, I, th I think that should be enough. But it's it's, it's ready from now. And, and I think um, I think the sooner the better, really, because um, uh, I think the, uh, the release candidates, I don't think there's been many uh problems found with the second release candidates so 
uh, I think it's getting closer and closer to a release. Max, I know you spent a lot of, of your time recently working on the Scaling Lightning initiative. How did you come to decide you wanted to put your time toward creating this Bitcoin Core testing guide? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a change from uh, from what I was working on in, only a few weeks ago. Um, so I've, I've, I think working on uh, Bitcoin Core has always been uh, like a dream or the ultimate goal, but um, you know maybe the confidence to get involved wasn't there or um, not really knowing uh, how you could contribute. Um, so I was uh, talking with a few people, including yourself, thank you very much, and um, it was suggested that this might be a great first thing to have a look at. Um, and it really was. It was absolutely fantastic to do because, uh, you know, in order to write a guide on how to test something, you have to figure out how it works in the first place. So um, it was um, it was really enjoyable, and I learned a huge amount doing it. Well, thanks for putting that together, Max. Um, Dave, do you have comments on the testing guide or anything Max has said? Oh, absolutely. First, I want to add to you, thanks. Thank you, Max, for putting that together. Um, a couple comments just for people who are testing. Uh, one other thing you can test is just test your own thing. However you use Bitcoin Core, that's the first test I think you should run is just, you know, get it installed using the instructions in the testing guide, uh, the release candidate, and just go through and test whatever you do. If you're using a really heavy production setup and you're a system in, you really need to dedicate a few hours to this. Uh, these major releases are come every six months, so it's not that big of a deal. And you really want to find out these bugs you know, before they could affect you in production. Um, the second thing is that it's okay to go off script. So Max has a great script system, great documentation here. And I say that as somebody who's been writing documentation for 20 years. Um, but if you're playing around with this and you just want to play around some more with one of these steps, uh, or if you see something, you know, that just you know, interest you, it's okay to go off script, it's okay to test features uh, from previous releases. You know, uh, one thing you can do is, if you get to that as a document and you want more, go pull up the testing guides for the previous releases and give them a test. Um, new releases don't just have bugs in the new features, they sometimes have bugs in the old features. Uh, we hope that doesn't happen, of course, but it, it can. Um, and just, you know, have fun with this testing. It's it's work, but it's also a great way to experiment with features with Bitcoin Core that you probably wouldn't often use. Like uh, prioritized transaction, one of the new RPCs or, or get prioritized transactions, and that's something that miners usually only play around with. Um, so this is a way to have some fun playing with weird parts of uh, Bitcoin Core. I would absolutely agree on the uh, going off script uh, because the more people who run through this, uh, it is a very uh, scripted guide. Um, you know, it, it's not likely that these things will break now because that path has been very well trodden. Um, but in a few places, I've tried to give a little hint on maybe something you could try yourself or how you could take it a bit further. Um, but I wanted the guide to be so that if you haven't got much experience, you can run through it. But then, yeah, obviously, um, it would be a lot, lot more valuable if you can then take that forward and, and go your own way. Thanks for putting this together, Max. Thanks for joining us and, and walking us through that. And thanks for hosting the review club yesterday on the topic. If folks are interested in how that discussion went down and some of the prep that went into that, um, check out the PR review club for November 15th and you can see more. Max, any parting words? No, thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for joining us. We have one more release from the newsletter, which is Core Lightning 23.11 RC1. We covered the same release candidate last week in our space and in podcast 276. So refer back to that for a brief overview. I don't have anything to add to that this week. Dave, is there anything that you think is noteworthy to talk about here? Uh, it's, this is a big release for them. So there's a lot there. And um, again, we, the reason we put this in the newsletters is so that people can go out and test them, especially if you're a user, again, especially extra, if you're, uh, you're using it, you know, in a, uh, a major production setting, and a lot of people do use C-Litany that way. Um, I don't know of any really exciting changes in this release that come to mind. I'm just skimming the release notes right now, but uh, I should have prepared better. Um, but if you use C-Lightning, uh, absolutely go check out the draft release notes. They're in the project's main directory under the file name changelog.md. We've given this warning before. Uh, maybe it's an opportunity to, to do it again with 
these different release candidates that we just covered, which is we obviously want these release candidates to be tested. And as Max mentioned, sometimes there's advantages to doing those on mainnet since these things are going to be on mainnet. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean upgrade all your production machines to these release candidates and start running them because there's risk to that. Um, there was an incident I saw on Twitter that you know someone had updated to one of the Lightning implementations release candidates sort of trustingly and had a bunch of their channels all force closed for some reason. So I guess tread that fine line of of testing it and, and maybe doing it um, with a small subset of your production or, or uh, in a testing capacity, not necessarily just blindly going to the release candidate. So moving on to notable code and documentation changes. We have two this week. The first one's to Bitcoin Core 28.207. And Dave, you did the write-up for this and we have your brilliant Bitcoin mind here. So I thought it would be great to have you take the lead on this one. Okay, this is actually a pretty simple change. So uh, what it does is change the way, just slightly, the way the mempool is stored on desk. Um, transactions can include arbitrary data. You can easily put those in an op return, although there's other ways you can include arbitrary data in a transaction. And when that arbitrary data gets stored on disk, it gets stored on disk currently in a predictable fashion. And what this means is somebody can put in an op return uh, the a series of bytes that virus scanners recognize as uh, the signature for a virus. And those virus scanners will then flag the file, the, the mempool, when it gets stored on disk, uh, which often happens when you shut down your node. So the node shuts down, it saves the current mempool to disk, and then it reads it back up when it starts up. The virus scanner sees that virus signature in a transaction in the mempool on disk, it flags the file, it quarantines it. The next time Bitcoin Core starts up, it tries to read the mempool. That file's been quarantined, it can't load it. Um, generally, in the Bitcoin Core, the mempool is not an essential file. So I think it just starts up uh, without the saved mempool. That's not ideal, but that's not a huge problem. Um, what we can do, and what's done in this PR, is that we can just shift the bits a bit. Um, there's a simple way of doing this. It's an XOR, it's really fast on CPU processors. Uh, if you wanna do a little bit of research, you can look into a Burnham cipher, which is this is actually the original version of it. Uh, it's not a one-time pad because we actually cycle the same bits over and over with the XOR operation, um, but we just, each node generates its own short sequence of random bytes. And then it takes the whole mempool and it bit shifts uh, each byte in the mempool when it saves it to disk by those random bytes and uh, writes it to disk. So each node saves the mempool in a different sequence of bytes, even if they had identical mempools. And what this means is that someone who wants to put a virus signature in an op return output can't predict how that's gonna be stored on each individual node, because each individual node is doing it differently than virus scanners, because they can't predict, the attacker can't predict how it's gonna be stored, they can't cause people to have their mempools not loaded. Um, we've actually been doing this for several years now, five, six years, uh, for the blockchain itself. Because again, people would send these opportune transactions or use other ways to encode virus signatures in the blockchain data. Um, and it's a lot more important to Bitcoin Core that it be able to read its blocks from disk in order to share those to peers and handle reorgs. Um, so again, this is a really simple process. Uh, and the one downside of it is that anybody who has written a third-party software, software outside of Bitcoin Core, that reads the mempool data from disk, uh, now they can't do that unless they also uh, perform the XOR operation themselves. So Bitcoin Core writes the key that it's going to use for the XOR operation to its log file. So you can just grab that out of the log file um, and perform the XOR operation yourself, which is very easy programmatically. Um, but just to make sure, 
Bitcoin Core has introduced a backwards compatibility RPC, I mean, sorry, a configuration option, persist mempool v1. Um, if you start Bitcoin Core with this, it will write the mempool to disk uh, without the XOR operation. So your software can read it in the format that it's used to. The Bitcoin Core developers don't believe anybody is currently reading the mempool from disk uh, with third-party software. Um, and the mempool data structure is not uh, a, a fixed API. It's, it's not a, a fixed data structure. So it changes from release to release. So anybody who has written software is going to have to update it for every release anyway. So they just don't expect people to read it. Uh, so they're planning to remove this backwards compatibility option in a release or two, uh, unless people complain. So. If you use that kind of software, if you're using software that reads the mempool, please let them know. Uh, you can just open an issue in the Bitcoin Core repository to let the developers know uh, that you need this, or just go and implement the uh, XOR operation yourself. Dave, are you aware if this is a reactive change to something that that has happened or a, a proactive change, just knowing that something that people have messed around with that sort of thing before and just trying to be proactive about it. Uh, the PR author, Marco Falke, uh, I got the strong implication from his PR that this is a proactive change. Um, now, back in the day when this was implemented through the block files, that was a reactive change. People had put viruses in the blockchain uh, and virus, uh, antivirus software on Windows particularly was flagging the blockchain as virus and preventing Bitcoin Core from loading it, which caused a lot of problem for Bitcoin Core. Um, and so that was, a, that, was a, that was a big issue back in the day. Now, for the blockchain files, uh, the way Bitcoin Core works right now is it only applies this defense, this XOR operation on Windows. I think it might apply, I don't think it applies on a Mac um, because Windows is where everybody uses antivirus software. It does not apply it by default on Linux. You can turn it on if you want and you can turn it off if you want. If you're going to access the blockchain programmatically, you're going to want to turn it off. For the mempool, uh, Marco Falke said that he doesn't believe anybody is using the mempool files. So the long-term intention there is for this not to be an option, for it to be applied in all cases on all platforms. Great. Thanks, Dave. I'll take this opportunity as we jump into the last notable code change this week. If anybody has questions for any of our special guests or anything that we've covered this week, feel free to comment in the thread here or request speaker access and we'll try to get to your question after this last PR. LDK 2715, allowing LDK nodes to optionally accept a smaller value HTLC than is supposed to be delivered. I think we've touched on this a couple of times over the last few months, but why would we want such a feature? Well, there's actually an open blip related to this LDK change, which I think explains the motivation well. Um, as a reminder, blips are Bitcoin lightning improvement proposals, not to be confused with bolts. And the blip in question here is blip 25, and it's titled Allow Forwarding HTLCs that Underpay the Onion Encoded Value. And I thought um, Val, who is the author of this blip, did a good job of summarizing it in a few sentences, so I'll quote her here. For context, it is expected that many Lightning users will be connected to the Lightning network via LSPs, Lightning service providers, who will be responsible for managing channel liquidity on end users' behalf. Often, users are onboarded to these services via just-in-time inbound channels when they first receive a payment. However, this channel open costs money, and so liquidity providers may want to take an extra fee from the received payment so that end users can help bear the cost of this initial on-chain fee. This blip outlines how they might may take said fee. And so this was, if you follow this LDK 2715 PR, you'll actually stumble upon a reference to this particular blip, which is somewhat the motivation. Um, Dave, did you have comments on just-in-time channels or this LDK change? Uh, not really. It's just... Uh... The, the one downside of this, I guess, worth noting is it's fundamental to just-in-time channels is that even though the uh, 
this allows the upstream peer to take a byte out of the HTLC size. The upstream peer doesn't actually get paid unless the downstream peer accepts that HTLC. It's possible for these transactions to go to chain, the upstream peer to have to pay a fee, uh, an on-chain transaction fee, um, but the downstream peer not to pay them by not accepting the HTLC. Um, if you're a large LSP, you can mitigate this to a certain degree using replace by fee, but this is a, you can call it semi-trusted protocol here where you're just kind of hoping the downstream peer is going to accept the HTLC because that HTLC is paying them money. Um, so it, I guess that's just, that's what I just add that as some color there. This isn't a perfect protocol, but this is a good way for the upstream peer to get paid for providing a valuable service. I don't see any questions or requests for speaker access. So, Dave, I think we can wrap up this week. Thanks to our special guests, Antoine, Max, and Greg. And thanks to my co-host, Dave, this week. And we'll see you all next week. Cheers. Thanks for having us. Goodbye.